0: Uh, we're glad that you're here. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for the blessing of being able to gather as a people that you have made to be your own. We thank you for um, the opportunity to worship. We do not have to bring our Goats and sacrifices to worship anymore, but that you allow us to bring a sacrifice of praise. And this morning, uh, we, we pray that that was pleasing to you, sweet aroma uh, to you uh, as we lifted up our voices. Lord, um, this morning, a few things we want to pray for specifically. One, I want to pray for David Ferguson out of C3 and just pray that um, as they're in a, a uh, unique season in summer where their church um, is, is in a college town. Um, I pray that you would um, give them perseverance and steadfastness. As many of the students are gone uh, during the summer, I pray that they would just continue to to be the church, to be your bride, um, to to reach out to others, uh, to put the gospel on display. I pray uh, for David and Whitney, that they would be enjoying you together, that they would be putting you first and each other next, and that everything after that would fall into place, kiddos, pastoring, um, help them to um, keep those priorities straight. Lord, I would also pray uh, this morning for uh, Zachariah Way Casey. Um, I'm thankful that at the end of the service last week, we, we were uncertain as to how he was doing with his health. Um, and uh, we're thankful for what you've done this week, that um, you've strengthened um, him and his lungs, and he's on a lot less oxygen. He has a name now, and we can pray for him by name. I pray that you would um, give uh, Cody and Gwen, the strength that they need to continue to um, persevere faithfully as, uh, as they just wait uh, uh, for his healing and uh, for his, um, uh, really just for his, his life to, uh, to continue as they um, are eager to, to hold him and uh, welcome him into their family. Lord, as we look at the second half of Second Samuel this morning, um, I'm thankful for a God who is um, unendingly faithful to his purposes. I pray that you would show us um, even more this morning um, just how good you are and uh, what, what we have received in Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn over to 2 Samuel. This is part four of a four-part series titled, Faith During Faithlessness. Last week, we considered God's blessings in David's life, King David. David lived in light of the reality. This was David's life. He lived in light of the reality that all of creation is about God. And this allowed others to see the goodness of God through his life. He left others impressed with his God. He wasn't as worried about impressing others with himself, but he left others impressed with his God. And as a leader, David was not marked by severity. Rather, in his leadership, David was marked by fairness and equity and gentleness and justice. As he moved in that manner, King David won the hearts of the people, and he went from being the king of Judah for seven years to being the king over all of Israel for a total of 33 more years, totaling a 40-year reign as king. He won the hearts of the people, and they wanted him to lead them. He ruled well, and he blessed the people. That's what we got to see last week. There was so much blessing in David's life that last week after I got done preaching, I I felt like I had run a marathon And I know that if I feel that way, sometimes after you listen to preaching like that, you may feel like you ran a marathon, and it's all because of God's goodness. There was so much of it in David's life, there's so much for us to consider, and we didn't even plumb the depths of it last week. But we saw that because of it, David led the nation of Israel well, and that was a blessing, a significant blessing to the people. David was a man after God's own heart. However, David was not God. When we study the life of David, we should never be more drawn to David than to God. That's something to keep in mind in whoever you're studying. If you're looking at the character of anybody, whether it was Noah, whether it was Moses, when we're done with that, we should never be more drawn to that person than we are to God because that person's not God. David was not God. God is the one who we make much of, and there's good reason for this. Today, as we look at the text, we're going to see that David is a sinner just like us. And as we consider the sad, spiraling effects of his sin after seeing so much of God's goodness in his life, we should plan to be sobered this morning as we engage the text. So as, as we open up the text right now, I want y'all to plan to, to be sobered after hearing about all the goodness and all of the victory and all of the faithful leading that he did last week as, we, as we're about to engage the sin in David's life, it should sober us up quickly. So let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 24 with that mindset. We're going to start toward the end, and then we will work our way backwards this morning. Second Samuel 24, start with verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my lord, the king, delight in this thing? Joab? saying, why do, you, why do you delight in the idea of going through the exercise of numbering the troops? Why do you delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on, the, on to Jazer, Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came from Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Imagine your job. <coughs> Consider some project that would take Nine months and 20 days. That's, that's a significant, um, expensive time, energy, focus. Nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or... "'Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, "'or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? "'Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me.' "'Then David said to Gad, "'I am in great distress. "'Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, "'for his mercy is great. "'But let me not fall into the hand of man.' "'So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning.' Until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Well, this is a very different David than we saw last week. We can't be exactly sure what David's sin was in this scenario. We can certainly infer things. We can consider the details that we have. But we can't be sure because the text doesn't say exactly what his sin was. We know that he numbered the troops for his own knowledge and that potentially David was putting more trust in his army than in his God. Potentially. However, we know that those closest to David saw something was not right. Please pay attention to this detail. Those closest to David saw that something was not right. And they addressed it with him. Joab seems to say to David, David, if we need more, God will give us more. Indicating that maybe King David wasn't thinking in those terms in regard to his Lord. This is a great reminder for us that God puts other people in our lives to help us see the wrong that we ourselves cannot see. Do you believe that that's true for you? God puts other people in your life to help you see the wrong that you yourself cannot see. What I mean is this, it's not as though David woke up that morning and said, you know what, I don't think I trust God anymore. I'm going to number the troops. That's not how it worked. Rather, he had this need. David had this urge. David had this nagging desire to number the troops. and Those around him saw that, and they called him on it. That's usually how it will happen with you. You won't just wake up and say, you know what, I don't trust God anymore. You'll say, you know what, I just got this need to make more money. I've got this nagging desire to look where I shouldn't look. And it's deceptive. And my prayer for you is the same thing that God provided for David, someone in his life, to see it more clearly than he himself could see it. There's a Paul Tripp quote that we have um, shared a number of times in this pulpit, and it's that our view of ourselves is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and we need God's people, our brothers and sisters, to hold up the mirror of the word so that we can see ourselves clearly and understand really where we're at. The point here is that we cannot trust ourselves to see our own sin clearly. You cannot trust yourself to see your own sin clearly. If you're sitting there thinking, nobody can know me better than me, you're wrong. That's not biblical. That's not God's design. Other people can know you better than you realize because it's by God's design that he's put them there so that you can see your sin more clearly through them. By design, we're a people of community. By design, we need each other. You're not sitting here as an individual who needs no one. You're sitting here as an individual who desperately needs the Lord and who desperately needs what he provides in the church. The church should not be as optional as it is to so many today. We cannot trust ourselves to see our own sin clearly. But I want you to know that David was not guilty of just one sin. Consider that David was guilty of counting the troops, mourning the wrong things at the wrong time, failing to encourage his troops, failing to trust God, failing to persevere, failing to raise one of his sons right, failing to show one of his sons the wickedness of what he had done so that his son wouldn't repeat it. And the thing that's most familiar with us is David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Turn to Second Samuel 11. I want us to take a look at two scenarios where David sinned horribly, because God has something to teach us in that. God has something to equip us with in these narratives. We've already looked at the counting of the troops, and now we're going to look at David and Bathsheba. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, I want you to remember, consider the context. In chapter 10... David has defeated Ammon in Syria, and it's to such a point that the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. People were saying, I can't partner with you against Israel because Israel's too strong. That's too frightening, and that's too, uh, the, the fear of that overwhelms me. So David had been exercising wonderful leadership and moving immensely faithfully up through that 10th chapter, and then we get to chapter 11, and look at what we see in verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem already in verse 1 something is not right this is the time of the year when the kings go out David what are you doing back home why did you not go why did you only send out Joab and the commanders so something's not right in verse 1 look at verse 2 it happened late one afternoon When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, when he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned To her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. What in the world just happened? This is King David. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man who boasted in the Psalms about the righteousness that he lived in. This is a man who has led Israel incredibly well. This is a man who has is, who is really enjoyed God's hand upon his life. This is a man who has been able to have sweet counsel with the living God, who is able to lead people well. This is a man who has had people look up to him and say, I want to follow you because you're doing a good job and I see God in your life. This is a man who has been blessed immensely and look at what he just did. This is horrible. We do not take a text like this and try to figure out what's good about this. There's nothing good about this kind of sin. There's nothing good about any sin. This is wicked. And what David just did is horrible. How could a man after God's own heart commit such a horrible sin? That's the question that we're left with. We saw such goodness last week. What happened? Look at verse six. So David sent word to Joab, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. Remember, that's Bathsheba's husband, and he's one of the mighty men of valor in David's army. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Oh, lovely small talk. Let's not mind what just happened. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Oh, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live, King David, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Who's showing more character in this verse, in this chapter? King David or Uriah? I'm I'm casting a vote for Uriah. Uriah just had the opportunity to come home from war and to go see his wife. Men, you can imagine. Yeah, go see your wife. He says, No. No, my my fellow troops and the commanders that I trust are are not getting that privilege and I'll not exercise that. They're sleeping in fields. I'll sleep right here. I'm not going to go down and do that. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow. I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David got him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's trying to get him to go home. He's trying to cover up what he did. He's trying to make it look like Uriah would be the father of that child. This is called managing your sin. When you try to manage your sin, you will generally only do so by sinning more. And the reason for that is that sin is not manageable. He's trying to manage it. Oh, man, I messed something up. All right, let's do this. We'll, we'll move this over here. We'll bring him home. We'll look at the timeline. No, no one will they'll look at the calendar. No one will have any, any clue. There won't be any suspicions arise. You can't manage your sin. Sin is not manageable. Look what ne- happens next. Well, that didn't work. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Are you kidding me? That's evil. He's saying, as we fight for the goodness of the name of our Lord, as a people set aside for his glory. Let's take a little side note here and um, make sure that that guy dies. This is horribly wicked. You can't manage your sin. You'll just end up sinning more and more horribly. And now he sets his sights to kill Uriah, to cover up the evidence of his own sin. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people who fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went came, told David, all that Joab sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, your servant is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus you shall shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. That's some cold-hearted stuff right there. Don't let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent, brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done dis pleased the Lord. I think that verse 27 might be one of the most understated verses of the Bible. The thing that David had done to please the Lord. Think about all that God's done. Think about what David has just done. In a world that often celebrates the sin of others and memorializes the downfalls of those in the spotlight, it's appropriate for us as the church to take a moment to see just how sad and how horrible this is. David is moved in a selfish and a godless manner and the results will be grave. His child will die. The sword will never, never depart from his house and there will be much heartache in his house and in the kingdom in the days to come because of his sin. So now what? This is a really important point. If you read The second part of 2 Samuel, without the gospel in view, it's completely hopeless. You just see someone with all the hope and all the possibility and all the potential in the world do the most horrible thing you could imagine. So if if you read 2 Samuel and you don't do so in light of the gospel, it's completely hopeless. I could say, meeting adjourned, y'all go home, and we would all walk out here sadly and be like, I can't believe that happened. Can you believe that happened? However, if we can study the downfall of David in light of the gospel, we will be rightly drawn to the only place where hope is found when we fail God because of our sin. So let's consider these things in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what God does in the very next chapter, 12:1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. What, what happens here? I just want y'all, just, just before we even look at the content, what, what, the content of it, God sends someone to David. There is such mercy and such grace in this. God sends Nathan to David. This is rich. Once again, Consider that God sends other people into our lives who can hold up the word of God and speak honestly to us about the sin in our own lives that we cannot see clearly. And look at 2 through 13. The rich man had many flocks. So Nathan is saying this to David. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. So Nathan's painting this picture of, there was this guy who had this one little lamb, and it was so precious, and the kids loved it. And it cuddled with them, and they fed it. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Well, aren't you full of justice, David? And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity? I mean, I hope the words of David are still ringing in your ears. Don't let this trouble you. Uriah died, don't let this trouble you. He had no pity, David. Oh, huh. Nathan says to David, You're the man, exclamation point. It's very clear at this point that God has sent Nathan to David. He riles his emotions and he says, you are the man, David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more, just like Joab said. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own household. And he does in one of his sons. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing to all Israel. And before the sun, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. To be clear, David's status does not excuse him from his sin. Particularly, God addresses David through Nathan as having despised the Lord and done what is evil in his sight. Church, we have got to stop lying to ourselves about our sin, and we have got to stop tiptoeing around the sins of others. We must love one another enough to speak plainly when sin is evident. Just consider for a moment what would have happened if Nathan decided not to address David because he was a friend, or because he was the king, or because he didn't want to be too hard on him. There's no telling how rampant things would have become as the king ran wild with unfettered control. The reason for this is sin begets sin. If it's not addressed, that's why we're called to turn from it. You don't try to do something different with it, because sin always begets sin. Sin never begets righteousness. You'll never figure out something to do with the sin to then turn it into something righteous. You turn from it. You confess it, and you turn from it. So thankfully, the Lord sent Nathan. What happens next? I already read part of it, 13b. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. How can Nathan possibly say that the Lord has put away David's sin? I'm hoping maybe some of y'all read that and are saying, hold hold on. He did what? Did y'all hear what David just did? The Lord put away his sin? This is difficult. David is at this point, David... No greater king in all of Israel. No larger account given to any other king other than Jesus. No one else was called a man after God's own heart like David was. But David is at this point in the ranks with the type of men that we give the death penalty to. He's stolen another man's wife. He's done so against her will. We have a word for that. And he's murdered the husband to cover it all up. How can God simply put away his sin? This is very important, because if we see the putting away of sin as the sweeping of it under the rug, we will have a very skewed view of our Lord. There's no way that we could see the Lord sweep such filth and wickedness under the rug and still view the Lord as fair and just and equitable. So what do we do at this point of the story? He just put away some of the most wicked things we could ever read about. What do we do with this? How do we view this putting away of sin rightly? Turn to Romans chapter three. you've ever wondered, how does it work with the Old Testament sinners? How does it work with the sinners who walk the earth before Jesus? How can God look at David and say, I put your sin away, you're not going to die? Look at Romans 3, 23. <clears throat> For all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means wrath absorber. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that's due to us. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That is what it means to put David's sin away. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One pastor, commentator, clarified that in a way that I think is fruitful. He said this, God sees from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place. So that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. And God justly passes over David's sins. The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough, and the glory of God that it upholds is great enough, that God is vindicated in passing over David's sin of adultery, and murder, and lying. So to be clear, God is not sweeping David's sin under the rug. No. Rather, he is counting his own son's righteousness as David's righteousness. Do you see the beauty of that? He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's looking through the ages in his infinite wisdom and saying, David, when he looked at David, he said, I'm not going to count, I'm putting your sin away. He looked at him and he saw his son. There is no righteousness found outside of Christ. No one ever, no matter when they lived, ever was justified in any other way other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a gospel message, not an adultery message. Be encouraged. No one ever found righteousness apart from Jesus, ever. Divine forbearance is a beautiful thing that we should sit and think on for hours to be able to look down the ages and see his son and look at David and say, I put your sin away. This is good news. God counted Jesus' righteousness as David's righteousness, and God counted David's sin as Jesus' sin. Last week we noted that we have what we have in the text is unique. Not only do we have the Old Testament narrative, but we also have the Psalms, which David wrote a lot of, so we have this cool thing where we can look at the story as it's going, but then we can kind of get the behind-the-scenes thing, the the, uh, the behind-the-scenes Details of what was going on in David's mind and David's heart and David's life because of what he wrote in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 51. David's sin was horrible and wicked and grave and it brought much pain, but I want us to be encouraged at the redemption that David had in Christ alone. Psalm 51. Not all of David's Psalms can be so closely dated and linked with what was going on at the time that they were written, as does Psalm 51. Some of y'all in your Bibles, in the little heading, it says, "Created me a clean heart, O God. It says to the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. We got a really specific Psalm so that we can know what David did upon sinning so horribly against a good, good God. Read it with me. Not out loud, that would be weird. Listen as I read. Have mercy on me, O God. I mean, please, as I read this, I want you to consider what David did. Take it with you to Psalm 51. Take with you the wickedness that he lived in. Take with you the, um, the things that he, the ways, the specifics in which he sinned against God, the horrible thing he did to Bathsheba, the horrible thing he did to Uriah, the horrible thing he did to the throne of Israel. Take that with us as we go to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. And blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. and I shall be clean. Wash me, Lord. And I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with the willing spirit. Then... Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. One thing that is consistent in David's life, a link that we can make from the good and the bad that we can see in Psalm 51 is that in both the the good and the bad times, David never makes assumptions based on the past or the future. In the high points of his ministry to Israel, David never assumed victory. But he went to God for guidance and for strength and for direction. And in the low points of his sinfulness, what we see in Psalm 51 is David never assumes forgiveness. Rather, he humbles himself before God. He confesses his sin and his guilt, and he looks to God alone for cleansing and for forgiveness. A few things that are necessary for us not to miss. First, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. All of us in this room are sinners. And if you've never reckoned with this, my hope is that today is the day. This morning before I left my house, I spent time in prayer saying, Lord, if there's anyone there this morning that doesn't understand that they're a sinner, may today be the day that they can understand very clearly that their sin against the Lord is just like David's. We're sinners. It's not likely that you lived a life as wonderful as David's. And I'm certain that none of us are God. And the word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. That means that we are all sinners and God would be perfectly just to send us all to an eternity separate from him. An eternity in hell. It's good for us to reckon with that. To sit and say, you would be perfectly just to send me away from you eternally. That's the kind of sobriety that Christians need to have. But the scriptures go on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This was true for David, and it is true for us today. The question I want us to consider as we read through this psalm is what do we do when we sin? What do we do when we sin? This is not just a message for someone who has never confessed Christ. This is a message for the believer who struggles with sin every day because it's not just a part of your behavior. Your sin can own you. When he says... I was brought forth in iniquity and then sinned and my mother conceived me. He's not saying, hey, it's not my fault. It's mom's fault. He's saying, no, sin's not just something I struggle with. It's something that's in my inner being and it has its own desires and it creates this wickedness and it pushes me and it guides me. Paul said, it's no longer I who sin, but the sin that dwells within me that sins. So sin itself sins. Sin itself has desires. And if you're a human being, you struggle with it every day. So what do I do when I sin? I've sinned against God and others. I've done something that's horribly displeasing to the Lord. I am filled with guilt. I'm filled with shame. I feel dirty. Now what do I do? Look again at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God. Go to God for mercy. Man, y'all might be thinking, isn't this Christianity 101 stuff? Yeah, it is. Go to God for mercy. Too many of us sin, and then we assume forgiveness. I'm chosen. He'll be cool with it. That's not a good approach. That's not a worshipful approach. That's a man-centered approach. Don't assume forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a thing to be assumed. It is a thing to be sought humbly. When is the last time that you went before God because of your sin and appealed to him on behalf of his mercy? That's your only appeal. When you're a sinner and you go before God who is holy, perfectly, and sinless, you don't have anything in you to appeal. I appealed to you on behalf of my good, I had a good Thursday two weeks ago. It won't cut it. The only thing that you can go to God with, that you can appeal to God with, is his goodness. So I read Psalm 51 very differently now that I've studied the life of David a little more extensively. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love because I got nothing in me that I can bring to the table to make you accept me. So I appeal to you on behalf of your mercy. I appeal to you on behalf of your steadfast love. So the first thing we do when we sin against God and we're filled with guilt and shame, go to God. Look for mercy there. Don't assume forgiveness. The second thing is in the second verse. Verse. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Trust God to cleanse you. Do you believe that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse your sins? To make you clean? Some of us are sitting here proclaiming that we're Christians. And that we trust Jesus to forgive us. Yet we feel very dirty. I'm speaking to you. If you're sitting there struggling with that, I'm speaking to you. We trust Jesus, but we feel dirty. What do we do with that? Some of us feel that there's nothing strong enough enough to make us clean because of what we've done. The shame overwhelms us. The guilt burns within us. You think if anyone ever finds out, you'll be rejected for life? Satan has a heyday with you, calls you a loser, says you'll never amount to anything. There's no way that God could accept you. And if that's you, I want you to know that Christ cleanses you perfectly. Cleanses. Don't buy into the lie that some particular sin will simply always dominate your life. It may be there, but it will not always dominate your life. Don't buy into the lie that you're marked with some scarlet letter that never allows you to feel real freedom from your sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know the good news that he gave his life to make us holy, and he gave his life to cleanse us from our sins. Don't continue to believe any lies that you cannot be free. Indeed, temptation may rage, but it can rage against a soul that's been made clean by Christ third thing is in 51.3. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. When David goes to God and says, my sin is ever before me, he's saying it's like a tape that just keeps playing on repeat over and over again. When I close my eyes at night, all I can see is the horrible thing that I've done. I see the movie in real time, and over and over again, I see how I failed God And at times, what I've done in the past haunts me by trying to draw me back to that place of sin, by trying to draw me back to that place of darkness, by trying to appeal to me that there may still be satisfaction there. Come try it again. I want you to know that you don't have to hide this from God. I want you to know you can't hide this from God. Appeal to him to stop the tape. Go to God and say, my sin is ever before me. I appeal to you on behalf of your your goodness, your steadfast love, your mercy. Stop the tape. And to help you not to carry the guilt of former sins. God doesn't weigh us down with guilt. He frees us. He's a God who says, take my yoke upon you. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The fourth thing that we do is found in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Confess the evilness of your sin to God. If we assume forgiveness, it's not likely that we'll ever deal with the actual evil nature of what we've done. We'll look back and say, man, that, was, that wasn't a high point for me. But I'm forgiven, I'm done. It's, it's, he'll, just, uh, he'll just forgive me. No. If we assume forgiveness, we won't deal with the evil of what we've done. And here we see David confessing specifics of his evil or confessing the nature of just how evil it is. I want it's interesting he never mentions adultery in Psalm 51. But he's getting to the heart of what the problem is, that he's not finding satisfaction in his Lord. His heart's not full because of satisfaction in the Lord, he went elsewhere. And here he confesses that evil to God. It's not fitting for one to confess Christ as Lord, savior and treasure and do something that's evil in the sight of God and then do nothing about it. Don't assume forgiveness. There's something immensely sobering and humbling to go to God every time you sin and reckon with the reality that he can justly damn you to hell because of your sin. To go before him and to acknowledge that and to confess your sin and the evil of it and to appeal to him on behalf of his mercy is a gift that we have from God in Christ. What we're seeing here is one of the most profound and true and raw pictures of confession in our Bibles. That's what Psalm 51 is. A true, raw picture of confession. And I want you to notice that it doesn't stop with the appeal and the cleansing and the forgiveness. Which is kind of shocking to me, to be honest. You would think he'd say, just forgive me. Okay, I forgive you. Okay, I'm good. I'm good now. Thank you, Lord. He doesn't, the true worshiper does not stop there. Look at verse 13 Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Look at verse 15. Oh Lord, open my mouth and open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The true worshiper is not only or the true worshiper is only satisfied when they're able to tell others what's happened to them. That's why evangelism isn't just some project that we set out to do on a Saturday at the park. Evangelism is, oh my goodness, God has been so good to me and if you are around me, you're gonna hear about it at some point in time. That's evangelism, not this project thing. You can go to the park, but go to the park and share about God's goodness in your life. Let it just pour out of you rather than trying to tell a story about something that happened long, long ago in a faraway land like it's a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's something that is very real and it's happened to us and God has done something good for us in Christ, and this should overwhelm us, and the true worshiper says, when all that happens, the cleansing, the forgiveness, the restoration, the joy in my salvation, I'm not just gonna go and sit and be quiet about it. I'm gonna tell people what has happened. I wanna tell people how good you are. That means the church should not be quiet. If someone tells you to sit there and be quiet, don't talk about what God's done in your life, you say, I'm sorry, I cannot help it. Don't be a jerk. Don't be abrasive. Don't scream like I'm screaming now. But it's good for people to look and say, man, they're overwhelmed with the goodness of something. These people are in awe of something. What is it? And then you have the opportunity to tell them about the goodness that exists only in Jesus Christ. It's not a mockery. It's It's not just this little plan. It's it's a life of worship. It overflows. It says, God has done such good to me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then, Lord, if you'll open my lips, I will speak of how good you are. True worshiper is only satisfied when they're able to tell others about what's happened to them. When we wrestle through the shame and guilt of our sin, when we feel the cleansing and the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus, we should feel the spirit-led urge to tell other people about it to have our mouths opened by God to tell of what only God can do. Upon receiving such blessing, it is God's design that we set our crosshairs on transgressors and sinners and trumpet God's righteousness that they too might experience the forgiveness and the cleansing that exists in Christ alone. A broken spirit and contrite heart God will not despise. Do y'all see that a broken spirit and contrite heart doesn't mean you're just someone who sits there and sulks about your sin? A broken spirit and contrite heart is someone who reckons with their sin on behalf of the mercy of God and then opens their mouths to tell others how good our God is for giving us such a remarkable opportunity for life. As we take the supper, we're gonna look at the story of Mephibosheth. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter nine. Mephibosheth One of those names as a pastor that you practice many times before you step into the pulpit. Mephibosheth. Got it. We're going to take the supper in light of this chapter. And I want you all to know that this is a time in David's life when David was rightly reflecting the character of God. This is before 2 Samuel chapter 11, where he sees Bathsheba. This is a time in his reign and in his kingship when David, when people could look at David's life and say, I can see the character of God in that man. And I want you to see what he does as he's reflecting the character of God. 2 Samuel 9, 1, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? (coughs) Just take a minute to see what happened there. I mean, do we ever just say, Who can I show kindness to? Is there anyone that I can just really bless? I'm so overwhelmed with God's goodness in my life. Is there anyone that I can just go bless? That's what he's doing here. Look at verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amniel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. I want you to know that what was customary when one king took over is that the living relatives were killed. So at this point, Mephibosheth was probably pretty nervous to come into the presence of the king because when one king took over, whoever was in the family of the king previous, they would kill them so that they wouldn't be a threat to the reign of their kingship. So when Mephibosheth comes in, he's probably pretty nervous. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table. Always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Is that how we come before God? What is your servant that you would show such regard for a dead dog like me? Then the king called Zeba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul, it's all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring him in, bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord and the king commands his servant, So will your servant do? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. (laughs) Now he was lame in both his feet. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. You are lame in both of your feet. You are abandoned in your sin like orphans. He was essentially an orphan. You sinned against God and you have no right to live. (laughs) But what King David did for Mephibosheth is what our God does for us. He shows us kindness. You don't ever deserve it. You have never earned it. When Mephibosheth went in there and fell on his face and was in fear, he should have been. And he was seated at the table of the king forever and treated like one of the king's sons. As we take the supper this morning, I want you to know that this is not a table that you earn. This is not a table that you, you saunter up to arrogantly. <laughs> This is a table that we sit at humbly, knowing that we were dead in our transgression and our, and our sins and our trespasses, and God has picked us up, he's breathed life back into us, and he's seated us at his table. We are at the table of the king. I don't, again, sometimes I don't know how to make it more beautiful without yelling, but that's remarkable. The table of the king, undeserving, lame and crippled because of our sin, Unable to even walk to the table ourselves. And he seats us at the table. And he tells us, you are my sons and daughters. And I will bless you as such forever. I hope you take the supper this morning marveling at the goodness of Jesus Christ. Because he's the wrath absorber. We don't take this in remembrance and in anticipation arrogantly. We do so humbly. We do so worshipfully. I really hope that you enjoy the forgiveness and the cleansing and the new life that you have the opportunity for in Jesus. And I hope that we, like David, will approach God in a humble manner anytime we sin. It's fitting now that as we pass out these elements, don't just sit there and do nothing about your sin confess your sin to the lord on behalf of his abundant mercy and you take that supper faithfully as one of the king's children let's pray I'm burdened that there's so many that don't know this story. There's so many that don't know that this story is an eternal reality. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us as we take the elements this morning As we remember what you did for us on the cross. As we sit with the disciples at the last supper. At the table of the king. Who's serving. As we look at our king and we know that you tell us that true greatness is to serve. For you came not to be served but to serve. Lord, I just pray that your people are filled with awe this morning, wonder, that we're marveling at the free gift that we have, that we're marveling that we're even at the table, that we're marveling at how the King would treat us. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are greatly to be praised. I pray that this morning in this text we have learned a little bit more why you are so greatly to be praised. come before you humbly, seeking forgiveness and never assuming it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good news indeed to be humbly aware of what it means to be seated at the table of the king. Appealing to God on behalf of his abundant goodness and his abundant mercy, take and eat, take and drink. Let's pray. Lord as we continue in worship I pray that you keep us well aware of two things our, our, our need for you and your abundant goodness that exists in Christ help us to give wholeheartedly in light of those things help us to respond and worship appropriately help us to lift our voices help us to speak truly help us to honor you as you are infinitely worthy of honor we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been on the receiving end of the good, amazing blessings that we've talked about this morning, quite literally, for the love of Jesus, tell someone, okay? Go find someone today. Share the good news. Be those who say, say I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed, and now I will not stop until I can tell transgressors how wonderful my God is. In our country right now, there's a lot of talk about freedom, and people are very in tune with what freedom is, what it isn't, what they think it is, where they think they'll find it. Y'all have the goods to tell them where it's found. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And it's very, very loving to encourage that in others and to let them know that. Uh, Let's stand, and we'll pray, and we'll be dismissed. Also, uh, every week we encourage you. um, We don't have Sunday school here. On Sunday mornings, because um, we have, they're called small groups, obviously that's not some amazing newfound thing, small groups is what we call them. Um, they're, they're just a time during the week where families get together and you talk about what the Lord has shown us this week and how particularly we walk in it and how we respond. So if you're not a part of a small group, I want to encourage you to, to seek that out. We've got some information on the tables out here and as well, you could probably just turn to the left or the right of whoever's sitting there, and, and ask them about it, and they can get you uh, the information that you need. But I think we have 12 of them going on throughout the course of the week. So you should be able to find a place that fits according to your, your schedule and, and, and even where you live, maybe. So I'm thankful that y'all are here this morning. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you very much. Uh, we thank you uh, for the good news that's found in Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for shining upon us. Thank you for being a leader that affects us like the sunrise, and it causes growth in us where we can't cause it ourselves. Uh, We love you, Lord. We trust Jesus completely. We count it a privilege to be called yours, and we come before you humbly praying these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.